0: Well, a very good morning to you all. We're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel today, and this brings us to Chapter 5, a well-known story. You might know it from this uh, particular passage in Luke 5, or you might know it from um, Mark Chapter 1 or even Matthew Chapter 8, because it appears in all three, in almost exactly the same words as we're going to find here. Now, often there are these apparent uh, discrepancies between different gospel accounts of the same events, and sometimes they do throw up difficulties. But sometimes I think, like here, they just draw our attention helpfully to a point that the author is trying to make kind of between the lines of his actual text. To the modern Western reader, this can appear problematic. Can we not trust the chronology of the Bibles, uh, of the Gospels, or the Bible as a whole? But I think that's asking the wrong question. The real question is not, is the Bible literally true? It's, is the Bible literarily true? In which case, the answer is definitive yes. What we read in the Gospels is a completely trustworthy witness to the truth it's setting out to convey. And that's not necessarily a uh, strict historical order of events. Matthew places this particular encounter immediately after the Sermon on the Mount, Two verses earlier, he says, to "the the people were amazed because Jesus taught as one having, oh as one having, as one having oh authority, as one having authority." Well, Matthew's gospel shows a, a, a quite a clearly defined show and tell structure. Um, each chunk of what Jesus taught is then followed up by a chunk of what Jesus did, which kind of demonstrates and amplifies the point that he was talking about. Um, and So each chunk of what Jesus taught is followed by, by what Jesus did. Within that structure, as the narrative moves from words into action, the authority of Jesus' teaching is demonstrated immediately afterwards by his authority over leprosy. But in Luke's Gospel, as Howard Marshall points out in his weighty commentary, the same healing event is placed right at the beginning of a growing confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's a confrontation that's eventually going to lead to his crucifixion. As the story unfolds over the next chapter or so, we're gonna see this Jesus versus Pharisee struggle develop. And as we're about to see, this apparently simple healing event is quite sufficient to lie at the root of this growing antagonism. Let's read together Luke 5, verses 12 to 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. As I read these uh, verses this time around, the themes that stood out to me are best expressed, you'll be glad to hear, by three Ps. (laughs) Purification, provocation, and prayer. Jesus purifies the unclean. He provokes a reaction and he prays where others merely act. Let's begin with number one, purification. That's verses 12 to 13. In the ancient world, going right back to the time of the pharaohs, leprosy was both feared and shunned. It was something you kept right away from if you possibly could. Even until quite recent centuries here in Britain, someone suffering from the disease was compelled to go about ringing a bell and shouting, unclean, unclean. Not very PC, is it? They lived completely cut off from human contact. In fact, as recently as 2018, a medical report on life in Nepal outlined the severe social and psychological effects of precisely the same kind of quarantining of people with leprosy. The very word leper remains to this day a rather politically incorrect word to say about someone who is shunned by society or ought to be. I notice that in our passage today, Dr. Luke doesn't see this man as simply a leper. He sees him as a man who is filled with leprosy. Like any wise observer of life, he doesn't let the condition define the person. The term leper is in fact about the most extreme form I can think of, of what we now call othering. It speaks not only of someone who is different from us, but who is dangerously, infectiously different from us, and whom we are entirely justified in shutting out of our society. Leprosy was something like an acted out adult version of a popular playground chase game when I was a kid. You've got the lurgy. Does that still exist? Do we know? You remember, you got the lurgy, and then you run away, and, and the other person has to chase. And... Oh, really? Yeah. They're so grown up, the children these days. Um, but, you see, unlike you giving someone else the lurgy in that chase game, where you could run away and be, and be free and healed, um, this is a lurgy that if you touch someone else, you'd both probably die of it. For the Jews, like Jesus, this quarantining, this aversion, was justified not just medically, but actually scripturally as well. As we read in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And we thought COVID distancing was hard. Among the restrictions placed on people with leprosy was exclusion from the normal worship and sacrifice of Jewish life. So you were, in some very important ways, actually cut off from God's presence. And this perhaps inevitably led to an association, conscious or otherwise, in the minds of ordinary folk, between this illness and sin on the part of the diseased person. But the worst part of being ritually unclean was that you became literally untouchable. Anything and anyone you touched became unclean too and had to undergo a ritual cleansing. Imagine how that would make you feel if that was you. So pity the person who catches leprosy, because Jesus does. In Mark's telling of the story, Mark 1 we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion and healed the man. Here, I think we're left to infer the compassion from the fact that Jesus actually reached out and touched him in order to heal him. That's an act of real love and understanding. And here's the wonder to the Jewish mind, If you or I had touched this man, we would have become unclean. Jesus touches him, and he is made clean. Now, this is massively symbolic of who Jesus is and what he does, because this expresses Jesus' approach to everything that we think separates us from God. Whatever we've done, whoever we've become, Jesus' wish is not to stay away or that we should stay away from him, but that instead he should touch us and make us clean. Remember last week, Simon Peter saying to Jesus, get away from me, Lord, I'm a a sinful person. Well, Jesus' response wasn't to shun Peter, but to call him into discipleship. And in the sequel, we see Peter, James, and John becoming Jesus' closest friends. Our natural inclination, if we're human beings at all, once we become unaware of our unworthiness, is to run away from God, like Adam did in the garden. But if we can steel ourselves to approach Jesus like this man does, he will surely touch us too and make us clean. So just a word then, on the way this leprous man approaches Jesus. Luke records simply that he fell on his face before Jesus. Matthew goes further and calls this an act of worship. And if we think about it, the words he uses are worshipful as well. If you want to, you can make me clean. This both declares a belief in the power of Jesus to heal and also leaves the question to him. He's sovereign, not the sick person. Whatever ails us, be it sickness or sin or a stony heart, Unconditional worship is always a great way to, produce, to approach Jesus. It's why vineyard services begin with worship. And when we come forward for healing at the end of the service, we're also following the example of this man. We're expressing our belief that Jesus can solve our problems. We don't have to believe that he will, just that he can. So when the time comes in a few minutes, do come on down. What have you got to lose? We're gonna be talking a fair bit about healing in the weeks to come, and I think it's worth saying that it's easier easy either to read too much or too little into Jesus' response here, this I will, I want to. If we deduce from it a theological certainty that Jesus always wants to heal everyone in every situation, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment because there were certainly times when Jesus didn't heal or didn't make it his priority. But on the other hand, as John Wimber found when he asked God in desperation, why don't you heal like you do in the Bible? God's answer was, well, John, the problem is not at my end. So we do live with uncertainty in this area. But I think if we approach Jesus with our problems like this man does with his leprosy, we are at least putting ourselves in the way of his healing touch. And if our problem is sin, I've become convinced over the years that the whole counsel of Scripture is that if we come humbly to the mercy seat of God, he will set us free. Part two, provocation. This is verse 14. There are, I think, two confusing things about this verse. A, why does Jesus tell him not to tell anyone else about his wonderful healing? And B, Why should he prioritise telling the priest and offering the appropriate sacrifice? The command to secrecy must have gone against every single impulse in this man's life. He had friends and family to tell this wonderful news of how a life of constant rejection had been turned upside down by two loving words from the Saviour, I will. And he's supposed to keep quiet about that. And then why go to the priest and fulfill an outdated ritual of a system that hadn't helped him at all, but rather condemned him to live the life of a monster? I think there are two aspects to the answer. One concerns the individual and one the public sphere. For the healed man, the ex-leper of Monty Python fame, it is a strong sign that what has happened to him is a gift from the God of the Jews. It's not some magic. It's not some new religion. It's a really old thing, as Cardinal Sunens said when the Holy Spirit hit the Catholic Church. Uh, he was uh, the Pope's envoy uh, on such matters. He said, God is not to do a new thing. God is to do a very old thing. But this going and making the sacrifice, prioritized relationship with God, even, though his, even over his much-longed-for relationship with people. His healing is what God's people were always supposed to expect from their God. But you have to wonder how often this sacrifice had ever been used. At the time, the term leprosy did have a much wider interpretation than it does today, and it might include various skin diseases, some of which, I suppose, might clear up of their own accord. Nevertheless, I suggest... It was a little-used ceremony, because there was a strong rabbinic tradition at the time that leprosy was one of the diseases that would only disappear when the Messiah came. And that brings us on to the public aspect of this double command. Imagine what happened when this guy pitched up at the temple asking for this ceremony to be performed. He'd have to explain what had happened to him. And that's what I mean by provocation. The news would have gone round the priestly class like wildfire. Either this Jesus actually was the Messiah, or he was a wicked imposter empowered by some demonic agency. Not for nothing does the commentator Marshall place this healing at the start of a growing antipathy between the religious people of the day and Jesus. It was a pivotal moment in the perception of Jesus by an important class of people. But not telling anyone else was also important in the public sphere. At various points in the Gospels, the writers tell us that what they call Jesus' time hadn't yet come. Jesus seems to have been acutely aware of when was the right time for different forms of ministry and different subjects for communication. Here, I suspect he simply didn't want the world to set his agenda for him. If he had come only as the great healer, he would invite it He would have invited all the publicity he could for his ministry. Clearly, that was not what he was about. Healing is a demonstration of the kingdom, not the kingdom itself. In his teaching, Jesus talks a great deal about the kingdom of God, the avoidance of sin, the snare of money, the attitudes of the heart, etc., 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 but very little about healing. In fact, off the top of my little bald head, I can only think of one healing healing teaching that Jesus gives, and that is, do it. In large parts of the church in Scotland, that statement is itself as provocative as Jesus sending an ex-leper to the priests. Healing now as then remains a provocative act. But in Christian circles, it really shouldn't be. If we remember the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we'll recall that the second half of it is, with these new disciples that you've made, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And if we cast our minds back further to what Jesus had commanded them when he first appointed the twelve and sent them out before his face, Matthew 10, we'll remember it was preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 7, and then verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. The part of the Great Commission referring to making disciples of all the nations is widely accepted and observed. But the part about teaching them to do everything Jesus commanded seems to have fallen out of fashion. Hence, healing has become a provocation. Not only to the pseudo-scientific atheist, but even to some who profess our own faith. Point three, prayer, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, it seems to me, gives us a clue as to why Jesus told our ex-leper not to tell anyone. Apparently, the others who witnessed this healing didn't get the memo, and as a consequence, suddenly Jesus can't go anywhere without people flocking to hear him and get healed. Now, that's great if you just want to big up your own ministry, but it's a, it's a huge problem if you want to invest in the guys who are going to continue that ministry when you're not around anymore. But as I said earlier, Jesus isn't about to let others set his agenda. He stubbornly refuses to chart his course in response to need, however severe that need might be. He's navigating instead by what he hears from his Father in heaven. And most often, that's not the same thing as just seeing the need. As my hero, St. Bob of Dillon, wonderfully puts it in his song In the Garden, the multitude. I'm oh, so tempted to do his voice. Uh, <laughs> the multitude wanted to make him king, put a crown upon his head. Why did he slip away to a quiet place instead? Why did he slip away to a quiet? <coughs> <coughs> why, why, why did he slip away to a quiet place instead? Well, that's the question, isn't it? We're not told what Jesus prayed that was so much more important than meeting these people's desperate need, but we can still follow his example. In the Kingdom Vineyard, we're fond of saying people before programs. Perhaps we should add to that prayer before productivity. We value programs, of course. We've even at times been accused of representing organized religion. Well, if if only they knew. Uh, But by putting people first, we try to ensure the appropriateness of our programs to the church as it really is, not as we wish it was. In the same way, we place a high value on productivity. But if we really want to bear good fruit for God, not just what looks good on a CV, we need to put staying in touch with him before everything else. As Teilhard de Chardin puts it, and i never tire of quoting, above all, cooperate with the work, the slow work of God. True productivity, or as the Bible tends to call it, fruitfulness, comes not from busyness or even from gifting, It comes from staying close to God. As Jesus puts it in John 15, it comes from abiding in the vine. Read John 15 every week. It's so important. So in conclusion, it seems to me these three Ps place before us three powerful challenges. First, purification when Jesus touches the leper, Jesus didn't become unclean, he purified the unclean. Well, who are the lepers in our own lives? Drunken fellow students? Homeless people? Aggressive colleagues? Perhaps if we're prepared to allow our lives to touch theirs, rather than shrinking from them, we can bring some healing to them. And I believe that if we are ourselves, habitual visitors to the mercy seat of God, Will become more inclined to offer a loving, purifying touch to the lepers in our lives. Second, provocation. Jesus never wallowed in the adulation of his fans. At the right time, he deliberately laid an inflammatory truth before those who could and eventually did kill him. So, do I surround myself with people who all think the same as me, or do I risk? mixing it with people who may find my faith and values a provo- provocation. As I said before, healing is a provocative act. And lastly, prayer. Martin Luther once famously said, I am so busy now that I didn't sp- if I didn't spend three hours a day in prayer, I just couldn't get through the day. And this point is not only for professional Christians, like these lot sitting at the front here. It applies equally to You lot out there, the Christian professionals. If we want our lives to be fruitful, we need to make sure we're abiding in the vine, and that means spending probably more time than we do in prayer. Speaking of prayer, why don't you stand with me now, if you're able, and join me in prayer. Then as the band comes back, uh, come and join me here at the front, and let's invite the Holy Spirit of God to touch us in our weakness. As he once touched the man with leprosy and made him whole, healed, and clean. So come, Holy Spirit, come and fall upon your people now. Come and touch our hearts with your cleansing power. Yeah, pour out your gifting on your people, Lord Jesus, as well. I think there are some here who are hearing a call from God that you've not heard before. Uh, I'd love you to come forward for healing um, and for uh, appointing and anointing. I think there are some here who've long-standing illnesses that Jesus is wanting to heal today. I think there are some here who have such a heartache that, and they've lived with it for so long, they don't any longer believe Jesus is going to heal it, I think today's the day. So come, Holy Spirit, and move among your people, we pray. And come, people of God, and move in the Spirit. Amen.